It's very fun when I work with teams and we go through this and they understand their own style. And then we start to do some facilitation about how they interact, understand, appreciate, and communicate based on these archetypes. And the most common thing is, I now understand why you and I are constantly butting heads. And then we start to see that soften a little bit. I'm not going to say it goes away altogether because, you know, in, in the We're heat humans. of deadlines, a lot of emotions are, are still yeah. there. But, but the more you can practice that, that understanding. And when we even look at more successful, innovative teams, it's diversity. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, thanks for joining us again. One of my earliest guests on this podcast was Carla Johnson. She had just written a book called Rethink Innovation. It's an awesome book, and we were talking about that. And I recently replayed that episode because a lot of people don't have the access to the early episodes. So I wanted people to be able to hear it again. And again, it was well-received, got a lot of comments about it. So I reached out to Carla. I said, hey, Carla. How about we check in what's new and would you join me again? And she said yes. So here she is. Welcome back, Carla. Thank you, Paul. I'm excited to be back. We had such a good time a couple of years ago when we did this that I was happy when you reached out again. Yeah. And how are you? I'm doing good. I'm kind good. of enjoying this, this fall Denver weather. Beautiful. Waiting for the trees to turn and I already see some snow on the mountains, which yes. is the skier and me I super I saw excited. that. I saw that. I woke up. I said, wow, they look good. Yeah, the Indian peaks look great. Uh, so, so for those who don't know, I mean, you're a global speaker, obviously an author. We talked about that. You have, a, you have your Rethink Innovation and you have a book that I just found called Union Pacific and Omaha Union Station, which was awesome. This night, if you're a hobbyist and you like trains, that's a book to check out. <laughs> but and you're a global speaker, obviously, a keynote speaker, but you're also an innovation architect, which is an awesome, awesome title. So tell me about that. You know, I say if you blended Frank Lloyd Wright with Lady Gaga, you get me, an innovation <laughs> architect. And and it's really, you, you just the listeners can't see it, but you held up the book that is a big part of what started me down that path of innovation and architecture is that early in my career, I worked for design architects and I learned a lot of how I approach not just marketing or innovation, but business from what I learned for them. And really design architects have, have done design thinking before design thinking was a <laughs> thing. Thank right. you, Ideo. And I learned about whatever you create to put to put the end user in mind and say, what do you want them to feel when they use this or when they have this experience? So in architecture, it would be in the form of the buildings they were going to design. So if they were going to design an entertainment space, do they want people to feel jazzed up? Do they want to feel like calm and soothing if it's a symphony? What's that emotion that you want to evoke? If it's a worship space, it's calm and peaceful. If it's education, is it both inspiring and a little bit more serious? So thinking about that emotion, and I think buildings are a really tangible way for all of us to understand that. 
When all of us who have different yes. office environments these days feel very different. And we were just talking about how I shifted the layout of my office because I have a lot of writing and content creation to do and how the setup in my office makes me feel changes the entire output of what I do. So if we think about all of that in, in an innovation architect, it's really blending that structure with the creativity. And I think one, it's almost like innovation and creativity are two different ends of the same idea, the same practice, the same skill set. But I think creativity is one of those things that you say, well, that's what the marketing people do, or that's the, that's the creative group. And, you know, maybe they're a little flighty. They dress a little, you know, different. I would say like hemp clothes and Birkenstocks and, you know, just, just a little more looser or, or, you know, maybe I don't know what, but there's kind of a way that they're perceived. They're maybe less serious. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, the innovators, the innovation group, and they're very serious and they're the data analyst and the researchers and the design thinkers. And they're taken a little bit more seriously and perceived as having more impact or importance in an organization. And I really think when we, when we look at how we rethink innovation, we're looking for that spot in the middle where we can make innovation everybody's business. It's something that becomes tangible, that becomes accessible, that you don't need a special skill set on either, either side. And as an innovation architect, what I look at is how do we start to architect the way people think so we can start to address some of these new world problems and put all this old school thinking behind us? Isn't that awesome? That is cool. I, I love the fact that, and I'm thinking about products and we think about those products that are really successful. And you touched on something that I hear so seldom mentioned. It's, it's how does the product make you feel, right? What emotions does that product bring out? And you can just look at those products that were just wildly successful and you can just relate it immediately to that emotional feeling kind of side of it. And I know when people do their innovation activity, they overlook that. Obviously, maybe UX designers in the digital world, uh, brand designers in the, the consumer goods world. I mean, that's what they live and feel. But too many people don't understand that connection. And even even if we think about like different nooks and crannies of the organization that we have an opportunity to innovate that I think are usually overlooked or kind of dismissed as not important. You think about HR and our opportunities to innovate in HR. And that may be one of the most important where we think of, consider how do we want people to feel during the process of completing an online application. And many companies their focus is on, and you're from the tech world too, Paul, the focus is on this is how we need to create this form for our purposes, for how our data or systems connect without ever considering what's it like to be a user on the other side. And I always say if somebody who had to lead that team had to go through that experience to get their own job, they would change that experience. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm actually going to going to, I think, post something on my, my wall, maybe today that says, you know, there's jobs to be done, which is a framework that a lot of people use, but there's also feelings to be had. 
And I Absolutely. think let's start that feelings to be had movement. <laughs> I like that. I like that because it's once you start to look at the opportunities from that perspective, wow, yeah. your world really opens. And it doesn't have to be a time intensive, money intensive, people intensive approach. You just have to look at it differently. That's it. Well, you mentioned creativity and innovation. You link those two together very, very nicely. But a lot of people would think, well, I'm not, I'm not creative. I, I can't participate in that. I, I don't know how to be creative. Tell me your thoughts about that. You know, I've never felt like that. And even though I've worked in very left brain industries, I remember, oh gosh, it was probably about 20 years ago. And for whatever reason, I reached out to about 10 or 15 of the engineers. And in the company that I worked for, it was an architecture firm. And I said, can you tell me like three to five of your favorite books you've ever read? And for me, it was an opportunity to find out where they went to learn what mattered to them. Or I think I didn't realize it consciously, but it was me asking, what inspires you? And I remember one of the architects or one of the engineers writing back to me and said, nobody has ever asked me this question. And I think it's one of the most valuable. And I think when we look at creativity and, and innovation, creativity, we see as something we appreciate. And I think innovation is something we value. And the difference between appreciation and value is a money aspect tied to it. So when we appreciate something, but push comes to shove, we can put it aside, right? But when we value something, we make sure that other things move away to keep room for that. So we think about the things in life that we value. We value our family. We value our health. We value our work. We value our education. We make space. And those are like, those are the non-negotiables. But the things I appreciate are always negotiable. And I think that's a little bit of a, of a distinction with how we, how we look at this. I keep calling it a spectrum, you know, like the balance between creativity and innovation. And, and I do have to say, I think like from my research, I think that creativity is undervalued. And I think that innovation is overappreciated because I think McKinsey isn't going to come into your organization and help you be more creative, but they will help you become more innovative, right? And so with McKenzie, and, and I'm kind of picking on them, but with outside consultants comes complexity, comes a lot of time, and let's be honest, inefficiency, a lot of expense. And when we invest in something to that degree, we value it. And so we think that the outcome has to be worthy, like has to be important. But really the beauty of both creativity and innovative thinking that's really impactful is when it can be really simple. And I think back to teams trying to take an experience like an online application form and making it very, very simple, that simplicity is not valued. And the complexity is. This is fascinating. I just yesterday attended a, a, a seminar, a, a conference, and the speaker was from Ancestry, Ancestry.com. Yeah. And she was talking about how they do innovation. And there were two key things that are like major, major, major things, speed and experiments. And so that's where they're creating, 
creativity comes is they they will run multi you don't even know but they're going to run multiple experiments on the way their application works every day every day it's there could be like 40 experiments in a day where they're really putting their creativity creative ideas out there seeing which ones how people react to them so when you get back to that kind of feel type thing right how how do people react to those and it was all about speed right they just need to be fast they just can't have a heavy process going to stand in their way so fascinating and it just aligned it reminded me of exactly what you were just talking about yeah it's very cool and there's you've probably read it the book sprint yep and it it walks you through how to do a sprint in 5 days and we can do this in any area of our business correct yeah so if you think about then the whole issue of creativity and trying to be more creative, are there things, are there techniques, uh, rituals, practices, behaviors that we as people can do to up our creativity? I love this question because I think when I say this, people are always like, what? <laughs> like, that's it? <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> that's it? And it's kind of back to... Like a, McKinsey is really a true illustration of the complexity bias that we have. Mm. We think that something has to be complex for it to be worthy and valuable and for it to work. And I think we do the same thing when we look at how do we start to fuel our creativity or innovative thinking. We think it has to be a complex, time-consuming process. But really, in all the research that I've, that I've done, and it took me five years of research that went into the book, which was almost two and a half years ago, and I... I feel like I'm just really getting into this research then and really peddling around this is that the more simple you can make something, the more effective it is, but simple is hard. And when, when I look at what the most innovative thinkers, the most creative people all have at the fundamental level that we can all practice and actually is very innate in us is our ability to observe the world around us. That's actually the, the first of the five steps of my wheel of innovation is, is to observe. And the reason this matters so much is that if we're looking for inspiration for our ideas, it's not going to be a giant billboard on the interstate or it's not going to be the obvious thing. It's going to be those little subtle things. And to be able to pick up on all of those subtle, subtle things and understand how they relate to the work that we're doing, we have to make space to observe. So if we think about creativity is all about connecting the dots, Steve Jobs talking about connecting the dots, observe is really about collecting those dots. And the more dots that we've collected, the more opportunities we have for our brain to make these bajillion teenth exponential connections that it, that it does very naturally. And we think that coming into a creative session or brainstorm or strategy, whiteboard, whatever we call it, you have to just hammer through the generating the ideas, like sweat it out, get in there, tear, you know, tear it up, bring the drinks, bring the whiteboards, whatever it is that fuels your creativity. And really, if you can just back it up three steps before that, and just become much more observant. Highly, highly innovative thinkers are highly, highly observant people. This is fascinating. This is so fascinating. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Like from a genetic and neuroscience perspective, this is how you and I are here today is because all of our ancestors have been successful observers. So you think mm. about 
generations ago when our ancestors came out of their grass hut in the morning and they stood up and looked around, they observed, or do the things I see indicate that it's safe or should I just turn around and go right back in my grass house today? But is it, is it calm? Is it a blue sky? Are the birds all singing in the trees? Are the antelope grazing? Or do I come out and the birds are flying away and the wind is blowing and the antelope are running from their predators? Those are all things that we observe and make decisions on. But our brain goes so much faster subconsciously than our conscious, right? Our conscious ability that it puts all of these things together. Once we give it all of this fuel and we, we limit our ability to see and take in our observations because we're on screens or even if we're out for a walk, we have earbuds in and we're listening to music. Like we're, we almost purposefully distract ourselves to such a degree that we've forgotten our natural innate ability to observe the world around us. That is incredible. That is incredible. You know, the old stop and smell the flowers and we get, you're right. We don't do it. Smell it, touch them, taste them, look at them, like observe <laughs> that flower as hard as yeah. you can. Yeah. No, that is, that is, that is amazing. It, that could be like the first thing we do is, hey, just practice observing and then see what comes of it. There's a, an archive or, or something from Steve Jobs coming out. You mentioned his name coming out. There are photos. There are stories that are being somehow revealed now that have been kind of tucked away for a while. And last year, one came out. It was a picture. It was a, a picture of him. And the story was he had been coming back from a conference with his photographer and they're walking through. I don't know what city it was. And he saw a glass window, big glass window at a store shop. It's in that it's at night. And there was a, a woman there using a Macintosh computer. And you could see kind of like her back was to the window. So you could see from her back. And if the photo is if him stopped staring, stooped over, looking through this glass window, just staring at what she's doing, right? That's observing. He was observing. Absolutely. It was an amazing yes. picture. Amazingly observant. And, and, you think about all of the things that we miss. Like, I think I remember one time my husband and I, we were watching an old Clint Eastwood movie that we'd seen 50 times. <laughs> yeah, at, at least, you know, 50 yeah. times. So, you know, all the lines, you know, everything that's going to happen. We're watching it and we go, wait, I've never noticed that dog in that scene before. Like one of those main street of the old wild west towns <laughs> and the shootout was going on. And then it's, but we were always looking for something, we weren't just taking things in. And that's one of those things when you think about Sherlock Holmes. Oh, you yeah. looked, but you didn't see. Yeah, for sure. If you can just, just practice. Practice looking at something you see every single day. That would be like the ultimate advice. Just just practice that. Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, I, I, I always give people a seven-minute challenge in my in my newsletter that I send out from my Rethink Labs. I give people a seven minute challenge. Here's something very little you can do in seven minutes that will help you be better. And teaching people that simple skill of observing that they almost dismiss because it's not complex. But if it's complex, we're not going to do it. If it's simple, <laughs> we dismiss it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Can't win. <laughs> so it's the conundrum. <laughs> you mentioned this newsletter. Tell me about this newsletter. 
Yeah. So I have a, a newsletter that I send out to subscribers that comes out every other Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And I share an innovative innovation lesson in there. And then I share some links to shorts, some YouTube shorts that I do. I do a YouTube short every week. And then a, a link to my blog, which comes out the same day. And then at the end, I give them a seven minute challenge, something they can do in seven minutes that will make them continue to advance their skill as an innovative thinker. And altogether, the email takes less than seven minutes to read. So I'm pretty big on invest a little bit of time, but we don't have to overdo it. But if you don't have seven minutes to invest, then you don't value creative and innovative thinking. True. Well, we're going to put the link to that to that newsletter in our show notes. You can say it as well here so people know how to find it. But if somebody's not subscribed, you better get out and subscribe to this newsletter because it's an awesome newsletter. So how do they find it? Yeah. And you, I, I share things there that I don't share anyplace else. Yeah. It's, it's from your website. You can get to it. So yeah, you can subscribe there too. Yeah. yeah. What's your website? Carla with a C, carlajohnson.co. There's no M. I say it's .co for the great state of Colorado. There you go. <laughs> you and I are there, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll have the link in the show notes too. So Carla, your book's been out now for just over two years, two and a half years, I think you said. What's been happening since you wrote that book, since you put that out there? You know, I've, I've done a lot of speaking. If anybody is interested in having me speak to their company or an organization or association, I speak to a lot of associations workshops, consulting. And I think, I think the biggest thing that has come out of this, Paul, is one of my goals is to teach a million people how to become innovative thinkers. A million people by way. A million people. So I'm, I'm close to half that mark. Wow. Close to half that mark. Yeah. And really helping them understand that innovation really is everybody's business. And I can tell I'm, I'm getting to where I want to be with my message because the most common thing I hear after I give a keynote is I now believe I can do this. Mm. Like people hear innovation and they're thinking, okay, it's on the agenda. I'll just listen to it. But they come away because I, I teach them a repeatable methodical process that can yeah. also be scaled across teams. And they say, I, I can see myself doing this. Yeah. I can now that I understand how to observe and what it means, I can observe. I can distill that into patterns. I can relate those patterns into my work. I now understand that how that fuels the ideas I generate. And I now see the story that's created so I can pitch an idea. One million people. That's a, that, now that's really a gift to mankind, to humanity. So that's just really, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for helping me reach more people. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah. Maybe I can get a few more. <laughs> no, no, we we won't do this by ourselves. But yeah, that's right. Together. That's yeah. right. That's right. So I remember one of the big things you had was your your archetype assessment. And I know we t- I know we talked about it last time, but I'd like to talk about again how that works and how it helps people understand where they are and can you just uh, share some of that with us? Absolutely. And how the archetype assessment came up is that after I got through writing about the process, the wheel of innovation, I felt that there was something missing. And I was talking to my editor and he said, well, really the next step is you've now equipped people with a tool and a how-to, but what do they do for their next step? Like, how do they understand it in their world? And for me, I understand just from my own experience and self-education and things, I understand that 
I come to the table with ideas in a different way that other people do. And I've been able to watch how teams can be successful or not successful, like a lot of headbutting, just because they don't understand different people's perspectives as it relates to ideas. This is beyond a a Myers-Briggs or or anything else like that. There's this dynamic because ideas are personal. And oftentimes the people who have wonderful ideas, they really come from the heart. And when they aren't accepted or welcomed in that way, it can be very hurtful personally. Absolutely. And so they, they step back and they say, my ideas aren't important. I'm not an idea. Like they, they judge themselves in a very negative way. And like I, I've shared, I think innovation is everybody's business and we all have the ability to contribute if we just understand how. So we went through both my own research, my own experience and other academic work on archetypes. And I looked at how it directly applies in the world of innovation, sharing, supporting, and executing ideas. And that's how I came up with my six archetypes. And I'll I'll run through them really quick. But in some of these, what people have shared is, I now understand why why I'm the oddball in the room. And I now understand I now understand what to do about the situation. So I don't feel shut down or so I don't feel overbearing or so I don't feel back to how, how do we want people to feel? So I also want people to feel empowered and understood and, you know, welcomed and embraced for their ideas as well. So with the innovation archetype, there's, there's six archetypes and some of the most, I'll start with the ones that I think people will more easily relate to because of their own experience. The first one is a, is a strategist in a, strategist is kind of just like it sounds. They're the, the planners, the, the thinkers, they, they understand the pathway that we need for ideas. So if you think like maybe a Bill Gates, that might be an iconic strategist, very methodical. And then almost maybe on the other end of the scale is a provocateur. And that's somebody who is always, always pushing the status quo. So, you know, you're in a meeting with the strategist when they're like, okay, what's the plan? What's our deadline? What's our milestones? You know, you're in a meeting with a provocateur when the idea part never stops (laughs) and, you know, everybody's leaving the room or the call and they're going, wait, I got one more idea. That's, they're never short on ideas. And you think about those kind of people, if they don't understand each other's perspective and where yeah, they come from yeah. and their good intentions, yeah, it's all about, you're so rigid. You're always about the schedule or you're such a flake. Like you, you're never grounded in reality. And really the, they both want the same thing. They both want a big impact through extraordinary ideas. And instead of butting heads, once they understand each other, they can be beautiful collaborators and partners. But along the way, it can't just be the big ideas. Okay, now let's get it out the door. We need people like collaborators because ideas never go anywhere by themselves. And they love to get in with some or part of the process. They love to champion them. They aren't big on getting credit themselves. It's about the we, not the me with the collaborators and ideas. And then, and I think this has become a little bit more common in the past few years, the culture shapers, really the storytellers. And we see this even across brands and how they present themselves. It's becoming much more story-driven, but we also need to think about that in the context of the ideas that we bring to the table. Because especially for wanting to make a big shift or change in an organization, a story creates that thread of, 
connecting the dots between where we have been historically, where we are right now, and the vision that we have for the future. What the future's next week, next month, next year, whatever. I don't know how, how far many companies are comfortable planning right now, but but when we give context and give people a thread of continuity, they feel that the idea is less risky because they do see it's rooted in their culture and it has more, it makes sense. It makes more sense. So that's, that's why the culture shapers are really important. Then we think about the orchestrators. And if you've ever, I know I've been on teams like this and I so admire this archetype, the orchestrators, they, they lead fearlessly. They're, they're, not turned off by having those difficult conversations early in the process, which I think is really important because too often you get too far down the line and you see something is falling apart because a conversation that should have happened weeks or months ago never happened because people just didn't want to deal with the discomfort. And the orchestrators are are beautiful at really navigating all of that inside an organization. And then back to a little bit of how we started the psychologist, how do people feel about our ideas and bringing in that empathy and people aren't necessarily always 100% of the time, one archetype, but we do tend to function in one area more than the other. Sometimes people say, I see myself in all of them. And that's just when they have become naturally very flexible in understanding different points of view. And, and they're probably a very effective team member because they understand how all of these approaches to ideas need to be cohesive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's just so awesome because you gave a framework where uh, I, as an individual can, okay, I can, I understand myself. And when you go into the details behind it, right, what that means to be that archetype and I can, associate everybody else in the room, I can kind of understand them a little bit better. Right. And so, you know, we talk about, we talk about the role of leadership and I'm going to ask you in a minute, what, what's their role in this, but, but this framework is, is, is really in a way bottom up, right? So you could say, okay, leadership have to create the culture, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a, a framework to enable teams themselves, self-forming individuals who get together to have that bottom-up framework. Yeah, it really is. And, and if you think about, if you want a culture of original thinkers, you don't lay that from the top down. Just like you said, it's from the bottom up. So to get a culture of original thinkers, you have to reverse engineer it. Yeah. And you have to start with the individuals and how they look at their own skills and their own approaches to ideas because it's the individuals who make the teams and it's the output of the teams that creates. Yeah what the company is, is capable of. So it's very fun when I work with teams and we go through this and they understand their own style. And then we start to do some facilitation about how they interact, understand, appreciate, and communicate based on these archetypes. And the most common thing is I now understand why you and I are constantly butting heads. And then we start to see that soften a little bit. I'm not going to say it goes away altogether because, you know, in, in the We're heat humans. of deadlines, a lot of emotions are, are yeah. still there. But, but the more you can practice that, that understanding. And when we even look at more successful, innovative teams, it's diversity. And there's a lot we could talk about diversity and in innovation, which is probably an, an, another chat. But even diversity of how people bring ideas to the table and appreciating that 
makes a big difference because all six of these together can really make ideas powerful. And if there's times where it seems like you have great ideas that are pushing the edge and you have a schedule and you've reached across teams and you have the story, but it's still not working, well, maybe you're missing that empathy part. Maybe you're still missing the human part. Or So you can start to see why teams struggle based on their makeup of these archetypes and what they're missing. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, as you're talking now, I think people who are listening are starting to say, wow, I can now see, boy, I'd love to have Carla come in and, and work with us or guide us or enhance our abilities as people or whatever it is. So so let's talk about that model because you go in and that's one of the things you do is you, you work with teams and companies in these areas, right? How do you engage with, with these companies and these these opportunities? I do. And it's it's oftentimes somebody who's heard me speak on a podcast in a keynote and they say, I love the framework, the ideas, the process, the research, and we'd love to instill this deeper into our teams, into our greater organization. How do we do this? And so I always look at where does it hurt the most? Is it just that when it comes to ideas, people just can't get it because they're at each other's you know throats because they disagree about how to go about it, then it's probably a team issue. If they all in general get along and support each other and want to do great work, then it's probably a process issue where they need to understand how to find inspiration, go through the wheel of innovation and apply it to a specific business objective. Because ideas are great, great ideas are great, but ultimately at the end of the day, if it doesn't address a specific business need, then it's all just a lot of fluff. It's the whipped cream on the on the cake. Absolutely. And when I think about, okay, you've got ideas at the front of the process. You've got ideas that happen during development. You've got ideas that happen as you're trying to roll out the product. And I'm thinking of all these things you're talking about, how applicable they are throughout the entire uh, life cycle of getting that product built and out to market, right? It's everything, ideas up front. No, no, no. There's, it's throughout the whole process. Yeah. You and I've heard that a hundred times. The idea is the easy part. It's execution that's hard. But in the reality, you need ideas at every at every step. Absolutely. I mean, because I say the idea was hard to execute because it wasn't a great idea to start with. But even when you have a great idea, nothing is just smooth sailing through execution. You constantly need ideas to deal with the problems, to take advantage of those opportunities, to shift when change comes from out of nowhere. Which Absolutely. I think we're pretty familiar with now. Yeah. Yeah. Surviving the unexpected. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Carly, this has been, as the last one was, this has been a phenomenal discussion. I just love talking with you. And I think everybody loves hearing what you have to say. If you reflect on what we've talked about, did we miss something? I would hate to see you you walk away and say, ah, Paul, we should have talked about something else. Or did we get it all? I think the thing I just want to remind people of is, I mean, we've said this for a long time, but I think through COVID and a lot of the situations that we're challenged with now, just how people work. I think now more than ever, we have to remember, we can't use the same thinking we've always used. We have to get out of our habitual type of thinking and we have to start to think different. And the more you can empower more people inside your organization or your team or your volunteer group, your school, whatever, 
to help solve these problems in increments, the faster you're going to be able to respond to this change. And I look at organizations who really, really struggled during the pandemic, and they literally were top down, here's what we do team, but there's no team. It's just executives who are all taking orders and disseminating the orders. But the organizations that are truly agile and, and responsive, and agile is such an you know over, overword tech term, but who are able to respond much faster and much more successfully are the ones who understand this mindset of thinking and are welcoming employees from across the organization to contribute their ideas in, in a structured way, in a structured way. It's not like we don't want to open a can of worms, but let's teach them a specific process. They can do it as individuals or as teams with no specific job title, no background, no specific education. And, and they'll make, they'll make a world of difference for your organization. Wow. What a, what a great way to end. Oh, it's been a lovely conversation. And this is why you're going to get to that 1 million people. I know you I will. Hope so. I hope so. <laughs> it would make me very proud. It'd yeah, very that would proud be, that, that would to be. help that many people. Well, Carla, thanks for stopping by. Let's stay in touch and, and let's do this again. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I'd love to. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul, for having yeah. me back. Yeah. Have a great week, Carla. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. Wasn't that amazing? So much fun. A half hour, in this case, 37 minutes goes by in the blink of an eye. So do reach out to Carla. Definitely, definitely subscribe to her newsletter, right? Go out there and find her website. Check out the show notes. It'll all be there. And I wish you all a great week. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com. S-O-P-H-E-O-N dot com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com. <laughs>